This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Sam Yancha is a outfitter for free-range whitetail in West Texas. I met him at the SCI Nashville convention, and we got hot and heavy very quickly, not like that. But we got hot and heavy about whitetail deer and why we love them so much and why he has questioned everything that has come to him about whitetail deer management because he feels like things are very, very different where he lives, where he's raising these whitetail deer and all of the elements tied to how old they get, their maturity, and he questioned it all. And so I wanted to have a conversation with him just about whitetails. It's the most popular species to hunt all across the world. It has the highest population of hunters that chase them. So everyone loves a good whitetail discussion. And this certainly ranks up there with them. Enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Your beard isn't as as beautiful as it was at know, the, the SCI out. show. Come on now. I cut it back yesterday. Uh... Check back tomorrow. It should be back out here by tomorrow. (laughs) 
are you one of those guys that shaves in the morning and have a, a five o'clock shadow by noon? Absolutely. So when I was playing college baseball, we had a no facial hair rule. And if I didn't shave like right before practice, I got in trouble. Like, so I couldn't get away with just shaving in the morning because there was no facial hair whatsoever. <laughs> baseball, uh, keen sport of yours? It was. Um, so I played at Texas Tech and then uh, my brother played at A&M and then went on to play in the Rangers system for a couple of years. So we're, uh, we're a football family. Jeez. Well, my kids, I feel sorry for my kids. Luckily, both my kids are non-athletic kids, which obviously breaks my heart as a really athletic individual. Um, but if they were athletic, uh, they would be severely disadvantaged because I have very small acumen when it comes to football. Uh-huh. And I'm talking about your football, not the real football, football. where you use a ball and a foot, right? Yes, yes. Um. I have no acumen when it comes to baseball. Zero. Don't think I've, I may have watched one baseball game or two when I was a PhD student at Ole Miss and they were in like the regionals. Sure. And the regionals came to town kind of scenario. So my brother played at A&M in the SEC. He got to play at Ole Miss and State and all the really cool baseball programs throughout the Southeast. And that was. Oh, man. It's amazing. It is amazing. Um, so, would it be a, a fair statement, or maybe a controversial statement, that white-tailed deer is not the most popular thing to hunt in Texas? Um, I would say that it's, you've got a 1 and a 1A between dove, <laughs> which is about the most popular. Dove? Dove, yes. So, I think more individuals per year go dove hunting than anything else but as far as the popularity i think most people would be more passionate about the whitetail do you own one of like the because you've texans specifically have like for doves specifically as well dove and texans you have like this uniform it's like this palm tree camouflage right yeah, so I think Game Guard kind of revolutionized the dove hunting, uh, the dove hunting get up, if you will. Chippewa boots, khaki shorts, and a Game Guard ventilated uh, button-up shirt's kind of the mo. If you're gonna go dove hunting, that's what you're supposed to wear. And some sort of leather strap around you that holds, you know, shells, a beer. The shells combined with the two birds that you've managed to hit. Yes, I think that's <laughs> the average. <laughs> Uh, let me see if I get this right. Sam Yanta. Yancha. Right? Close, yes. Yancha. Pretty close. Pretty close, yes. Um, I got an education from Denise this morning on how to say your last name, and I think she mispronounced it, so... Oh, right. that doesn't surprise did... me, but please don't correct her. <laughs> I did not. I said, okay, Yanta. Yeah, okay, I got it. Yanta. All right. Wonderful. Because <laughs> um, I, was, I was very much a Sam Yanka well, you kind of guy. Yeah, you know, answer to about anything. You know, just get it in the ballpark, and my brother and I and my wife will pretty much turn our heads, so. Sam, uh, give a little bit of introduction to who you are, what you do, um, so that people sort of get an idea of, of, you know, where you live, what you do. So, I'm in West Central Texas, and actually, geographically, it's really close to Central, but the topography and the climate tends more to true West Texas climate, and so we're right on the edge of the hill country. 
and then you get into the more desert climate that we're in. Um, I graduated college in 2010 from Angelo State University with a degree in animal business. Uh, I started my outfitter in 2009 um, as a way to kind of get through college. And then in 2014, I started a fabrication company that's kind of evolved into a large truck accessory business. And that has since taken the pressure off my outfitter to provide for my family and has allowed me to turn it into more of a passion project, which led us to sitting down here. And um, my passion has become the free range whitetail deer in West Texas. South Texas is notorious uh, for big whitetail, but where we are out here. And then notorious for big whitetail because of the mesquite and the, um, what do they call it? The What's the thorny bush down there? It's called... You've got shit if you um, Algerita. They have a lot of good native browse and forbs. And then incredible... That are full of protein, right? That oh. just can pump on the, the good horn structures or antler structure that you see down in South Texas whitetails. Yes, sir. And then you've got a lot of, uh, of great natural genetics in South Texas as well. Uh, there's a lot of South Texas that is high fence and they're large high fence and it doesn't take away from what they are as deer a lot of them are native deer but they're inside these large high fenced areas that allow them to control their herd a little more uh there is a lot of sam when you say large for people that are just have no idea what are you talking 10, about thousand plus acres how many Ten thousand. wow Ten thousand plus acres i mean and you'll see smaller tracks down there but south texas has uh the hunting shows have done wonders for South Texas. They've all almost uh, had a negative impact on the outfitters in Texas because if you're hunting a free-range deer, those hunting shows have made the illusion that every deer that walks out of the brush in South Texas is going to be a Boone and Crockett's deer. It's just going to be a monster that comes out, and it's taken away the uh, the allure of what a good representation of a low-fence free-range whitetail looks like. Mm. Mm. So, you 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 made quite a distinction. South Texas, there are low range opportunities for big deer Absolutely. in South Texas. Absolutely. Do you, as a native Texan, because this comes up very frequently from a discussion perspective, do you have an opinion about high fence? I'm glad you asked that question. So. I understand it now, and I've gone with our good buddy Trevor up to Michigan, and um, until then, I've hunted high fences for exotics and taken my wife to do different things, but I went to, uh, with a lot of my, my buddies here, we take a trip every summer to Michigan, and we hunt a small high fence place up there, and I have a great appreciation for it now, because the animals are impressive, one. The hunt is not as challenging, but the experience shared between me and four of my best friends in the world, that animal that we took as a representation of the trip that we had and the great times we had, the memories that we'll have. So I understand the high fence approach much more than I did three or four years ago. Um, in Texas, a lot of it is large acreage. Um, there's a place for all of it. I guess that's that's a mm. way to say there's no negatives or positives this that, and the other it's just to each its own and uh got nothing negative to say about the high fence mentality 
But as you, I think you just alluded to, the thing that we're probably going to spend the most time talking about, high fence offers the opportunity for management. Yes, it does, absolutely. A high degree of management. It does, for sure. It, it does, you get, uh, you can control one factor that free range can, is what comes and goes. You can control your perimeter, you don't have neighbors to worry about, you can... Um, you can really manage the deer or whatever uh, animal it is that you have right there, and you don't have to worry about. Well, there's one less thing to worry about with it. Does it make it less fair then, though? I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I think that has to do with the mindset of the hunter, what they're going after. If they're going into a high fence and expecting a free chase, fair—I mean, fair chase, free range hunt, then don't go to a high fence, go to a free range deal. So if you're, it, it's all in the, in the perspective that you're going into that hunt with, you know what you're going, if you're going to a high fence, expect a high fence hunting experience. Some of these ranches are going to offer, I mean, it's, it's say South Africa, those places are huge. It doesn't, those animals don't know that they're high fence. They don't know that they <laughs> can't get out. Um, it's such large acreage and rough topography on a lot of these places here that those whitetail that are in there, they don't know that they're high fenced. And when it comes down to it, even where I'm at, I've got 51,000 acres of low fence, free range country, but within a, a four mile stretch on my, I guess it would be my Northwest border is high fenced by another ranch. It's not my place, but I do have a barrier there. And then you go, at some point you're going to run into a, to a high fence. That's just the way Texas has gone. You've got a lot of high fence places going up. You know, you, we talking a little bit more about the fairness component, and you, you mentioned that it's you know up to the individual hunter to determine you know what he wants to hunt and how he wants to hunt. But don't we have a moral obligation to the number one, the animal; number two, people looking at our lifestyle to say, "You guys are hunters," i.e., definition of hunting is chase pursuit and failure should we not not make it easy is i guess my you know it's just it's a, it's a very it's a it's a it's a ideological question so i'm keen to hear what you think about it. okay so i'm going to hit on that by saying where we kind of hit this off was my opinion to question everything to counter everything when it comes to this so counter this you said as hunters our obligation but as hunters are we also not conservationists and doing what's best for the animal and a lot of times if you're willing to put in the infrastructure and spend the money to high fence a place you're going to be feeding those animals you're going to be watering them you're going to be giving them the best life to so they can reach their best genetic potential um so on the flip side of that our obligation is to take care of the animals and in my opinion the folks that commit to go that route are doing a very good job of taking care of those animals. Hmm. So the idea that as the hunter coming into the property, you know, getting into the blind, waiting for an hour or two, that deer walks out and you shoot it, is still fair? So on my free-range country... That's a real similar, I mean, that's how we hunt them there too. What's the difference on hunting a waterhole for 
a leopard or an animal somewhere you know, crazy through the world hunting pronghorn in Colorado over a water hole, you're still sitting there waiting for that animal to come to a food source or a water source. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the crux of the matter. And nobody can ever, two things, nobody can ever put their finger on is luck. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Everything with hunting is tied to luck. So you could get into a, a high stand, a box stand, overlooking said food plot. Mm-hmm. It could be low range or it could be high fence. Both scenarios, you could sit there for five days and not see the animal you want to take. Absolutely. Absolutely. Both scenarios, you could spend 15 minutes and the target deer walks out and you shoot it. Without question. Without question. Um, let's talk axis deer, one of my favorite things to hunt. I don't care if it's a 100-acre high fence. That's a hard animal to hunt. It doesn't matter what size it is. They'll find, they'll hide, they'll lay down. And so there's different animals, different species. There's been countless times on our free-range whitetail. We're on the way to where we're going to sit for the afternoon, and we've run across the deer we're looking for. I mean, we're, like you said, 10 minutes into the hunt, and we can end it. And we have a lot of people that may go home empty-handed or without their target animal on those hunts because they want it to be a hunt. They don't want it to be over within 10 or 15 minutes. And that goes back to what you said about the luck factor of it. Just uh, when you have a, when you have a range on a, on an animal, one mile, two mile, three miles over their life, whatever it may be. If you're hunting 51,000 acres, you know, 20, 20 square miles, 30 square miles, those animals would never see the boundary anyways if it was high fence. So they don't know they don't know a difference in that. Yeah, and honestly, when you think about it, regardless of the property size, well, not regardless, because it plays into this, this statistic, that when you sit on a food plot, what are you looking at? You're looking at maybe 20 acres. Absolutely. 50 acres, mm-hmm. 60 acres, right? Mm-hmm. Of a 5,000-acre high fence. Correct. Of 51,000 acres of low fence. Mm -hmm. So, again, the luck and the chance comes down to preparation, comes down to wind, comes down to knowledge. All those kinds of things play into it. But still, you're taking a random chance to sit at a specific place at a specific time to hope that you intersect that animal. Absolutely. The guys through the Midwest, that you see it all the time there, scout trail cameras on trails, scrapes, rubs, everything like that. They do their homework over and over and over again. And most of it's archery to hunt a 50 yard by 50 yard square for one particular animal. So it, yes, it, it does. You're, you're hunting whatever your effective range with whatever weapon you're carrying. That's the area you're hunting out, no matter how big the entire property is. So let's talk about, because... One of the things, obviously, that you're passionate about is whitetails. Um, it's the first animal, uh, you don't know this about me, but it's the first animal I ever got to to hunt. It's what okay. be- made me a hunter. My family is full of hunting heritage. I just never got to hunt. I hunted some pigeons and doves once when I was 16. But when I came to Mississippi, I met a six foot five, 200-pound, 250-pound redneck who said, you want to go hunting? I said, absolutely, get your hunting license, did all the things that I needed to do, ordered my 7mm short-action ultra mag from gunbroker.com. Okay. 
All right. Had to wait the full 10-day ATF clearance period <laughs> because I was a <laughs> foreign alien at the time. Um, and we went hunting. And he said, you know, it was the classic, like, we had dumped a bunch of sweet potatoes <laughs> into the forest. He sat me under a cedar tree with a stool. And he says, if something comes by, shoot it. So that was my introduction to whitetails. Okay. And obviously since I've been fortunate enough to kill only two bucks, I've been, I've been hunting since I was 26. I'm 44 now. So almost 20 years I've been in the States. Um, I've only killed two d bucks in my life. Um, killed a lot of does. And have been in places where, you know, there's a strict deer management program in place. You know, you're only supposed to shoot a four and a half year old deer here in Mississippi. And, uh, you know, you're in the stand and you see a good buck come by and you're like, is that four and a half or is that three and a half? I don't know. And so you don't shoot. And because you want to get invited the next year. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you said what you just said, because that's what I want to talk about a lot. How do you know? How does anybody know? before you pull the trigger without a tag in that deer's ear that you were raised him and know exactly when he was born. How do you know he's three and a half? How do you know he's four and a half? How do you know he's not eight years old? Well, there's certain characteristics, right? I know that QDMA put out like the book and the poster. I remember seeing the poster. Obviously you cannot see the jaw when you're standing and sitting in the stand. Correct. But the Roman nose, you know, the rectangle body, the sloped back, the brisket, all of those kinds of things, right? To an extent, yes. I, I will agree with that to an extent. A wet year, a dry year, supplemental feed. Um, let's talk about just genetic structure from the get-go. That, I mean, yes, my brother and I were nine years apart, but he's the exact same size as me. We're the same weight. We have, he's a little more fit than I am, but that comes... Uh, He'll get to this when he gets a little older and, and lays off a little bit. But we also have uh, another friend of ours that's my age, but I'm 6'2", and he's 5'6". What's the... How much does that really play? Yes, I agree that, in my opinion, you can tell an immature deer from a mature deer, which opens you up to how long the deer lives. We can get into that here in a minute, but... So what is a mature deer to you, Sam? A mature deer to me, if I were going to put an age to it, is going to be six or older, and I have the data to back that up. But it why, why is that so different than in Mississippi, where it's like four and a half is the number? Well, and so when you get into that, if I were to go to the hill country, I would probably change that, um, especially if you go to a place that doesn't have supplemental feed and you factor in their deer densities and their native vegetation, a lot of that factors into the true lifespan of a deer. When you're talking about the maturity, you're talking about when they're going to reach their peak genetic potential. And depending... Peak genetic potential in terms of antler expression. Antler expression, body expression, there's a lot of things okay. to be considered. Uh, my philosophy on it is I want to build a healthy deer and let the antlers take care of themselves. Um, so when you move through different parts of Texas, different parts of the country, the age ex life expectancy of those deer is going to change due to climate, due to nutrition, due to genetics. And so every herd is different. My 
deer herd that I've established over the last six years now with my management program is different than my neighbor's that's two miles away from me because his densities are a lot higher. His, he's not on the feed program that I am, so it changes place to place. And one of the things that frustrated me early on in this and brought me to start questioning everything, that poster you just mentioned, why does that mm. have to be the blanket philosophy for all deer in Mississippi? Why can't a river bottom property have better nutrition, have been managed properly, the deer densities are lighter so there's more adequate food they've been on a ratio management program keeping all that in order those deer not be healthier and expected to live longer therefore continue to get better further along in their life than say the do you think that there would be that much of a difference say in mississippi uh i do i absolutely do and i've got some data that I've been so expression wise, you think there'd be a difference in a four and a half year old deer just based on habitat quality, feed, all those kinds of things. Absolutely. I do I do believe that. I, I do believe that that absolutely plays into it. Um I'll throw some stats to you and after they're harvested, I know the ages. I always use Madsen's lab out of Montana. They use a cementum analysis on the teeth and it's it's accurate. So one thing I can tell you is some of those features you've talked about, the big brisket, the saggy belly, the sway back. If you have a deer, and before I started this, our average mature buck weight, and so I'm going to say in this scenario, five years and older, was 145 pounds live weight. What does live weight mean? Not gutted. Not gutted, correct. This Because I'm looking at them on the hoof because I'm trying to form as much Data it seems like a, that's that's a small deer. It's a representative Texas deer. It really is. Um, now, fast forward to where we are today. I believe our average live weight this year on what came back as our mature deer was 193 pounds. Damn. Yes. That's almost like 40% bigger. It's Yes, and it's made a huge difference. So when you talk to body weight... Now I want to throw this back that the five biggest deer we killed this year, weight-wise, they were all over 200 pounds. They were three and four-year-old deer. Obviously, we didn't know that, but dang what you said, big belly, big brisket. You look at the body, but we these are deer that have been born on my feed program. So they're bigger bodied earlier. They're expressing that big belly. They have the big brisket. They have thick necks. They have a lot of characteristics that in pre previously would have thought that that's an older deer. So you, is that why you think they got shot? Because everyone thought that that was a six-year-old, seven-year-old deer? I mean, I'm as guilty. I call it as a, as a guide with hunters. I called the shots on those deer too, but we are still learning. We're still compiling this data. And now I've seen two years in a row that our biggest weight class deer are actually coming up deer that have been born on this feed program, water program, everything we're doing that are falling in that middle age category where the deer that are weighing in at say 180 pounds are the six, seven, eight year old deer that in turn also have the largest antlers. So we're seeing some correlation between they're building, they're going up in weight, the antlers look great, look great, and then the weight starts kind of leveling off, tailing down, and then the antler growth reaches its peak around seven years old is what we're seeing now 
do you think you have the data though? You said you were on the you've only been on the feed program for six years, right? So do you think you have a deer? Because if if I'm just trying to sort of do a little bit of back timing calculation here, right? So if you had a five-year-old deer or four-year-old deer that was born four years ago, I'm just trying to think, when would you need to have had a doe drop a fawn that was a buck that would now be in the four- to five-year-old age class? You probably have some deer out there yes. that are in the four-year-old age class, but you don't have data yet of that deer that started on the on the program entering into the five, six, seven-year-old age classes yet. Correct. Yes. So I'm about four years away from having a complete, say, ten-year cycle of, of data on this. Um, this has been done before myself. I got this idea from a gentleman named Brett Holden. He's in South Texas. He owns Double Down Deer Feed. And we take a slightly different approach to it. Um, but Brett was the first one that opened my eyes to deer, free range deer living to 8, 9, 10, 11 years old and not melting down to nothing, still being very, very strong antlered deer. Um, he showed it. He runs a much more uh, higher deer density than I do and on his feet program, but he's proven it. Um, my brother and I actually went down there and saw this firsthand, and we took away a couple of things from it. One, we went in the peak of the rut, and every buck we saw took time from chasing does to come eat feet, come eat this protein ration that he had developed. We also looked at that what you would consider cull bucks. And you, would that be, are you saying that's anomalous? I'm sorry? Would you say that's anomalous, anomalous, i.e. that bucks in the rut are not feeding? Typically, they do, they leave, they're, they're more focused on chasing does, um, they're more focused on that part of their life than they are on, on eating, and that's why you see a lot of deer draw down in weight, die, and everything during the rut. It's hard on them. Um, so we noticed that they were all, would break away. They'd chase for five minutes hard, they'd break away, they'd come eat. Then we also looked at it, and he's in South Texas in some very, very prime genetic country. It's been grown pick deer forever. But we looked at our younger bucks and what he called his you know, one, two, and three-year-olds. And we noticed that there wasn't a lot of difference in the quality of those deer versus what we have out here where we are. The only difference is he's feeding the hell out of them and then letting them get to seven, eight, nine years old. and yeah, but they've also got you've also got a landscape that's different, right? You've got a landscape that's full of protein, as you said. The brush, the native forage is just power packed. So they've been hit by drought for about the last five years, and due to his densities, his browse line is actually non-existent. So it's almost that that's what they have to eat is that feed ration. Mm, okay. Um, he's added waters. He's done a lot of things that we've mimicked out here. Um, so the original ideology that I got was from him and we've taken it and implemented it in a different climate, different terrain, and overall a different herd of deer. Um, the question that is still yet to be answered is where is the true deer born on this ration, on this program? Where does he reach his peak body? Where does he reach his peak antler growth? And I hope to have that in the next few years here. But it's been 
astounding to me that that poster that you go back to reference that because there's one for that Texas Parks and Wildlife has put out too, and I don't think it's changed since the 1970s. Is this is what a one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old deer looks like? And my question is, why does that? Why can science research everything affect cattle? Affect every other livestock-driven industry? But whitetail is it? The free-range whitetail is impervious to scientific research and advancement. Uh, mm. I hear it all the time ranchers out here say yeah i saw this buck up over the hill he was a five-year-old deer how do you know that if he's not wearing a name tag he doesn't have his age draped around his neck how do you know that well you know his back end it was angled real hard on his butt there and you know his hawks were real dark and we don't know we, we don't know we can make an educated guess and a lot of times thank you to our TV shows, our outdoor shows, that's made everyone the foremost expert in field judging whitetails. But I'll be the first to admit, I was an idiot on this until I started studying, until I started doing the research and getting concrete data back on how old these deer were when we harvested them. Then you can go back and you can find chronological pictures from recent years and say, okay, this is what his body looked like then, and then here, and then advance it through. And then you start seeing some cluster data and things start making a little more sense where now I would say I'm confident within I'm confident within two years on a deer. If I see one out there, the only way, so we go with the assumption that if we recognize a deer that doesn't have, you know, missing ear or some random body mark, if we're just looking at antlers, we're not going to notice that deer when he's a yearling, when he's a year and a half old. We may, he may show some potential at two, so our assumption when we're looking at a deer is the first year we saw him, he was at least two years old. We mm-hmm. have trail cam pictures for the next four years. We get ready to <laughs> harvest him. We can safely say, I believe that deer is a minimum of six years old. And that's how we're basing what we're harvesting, or at least trying our best to, is how many years of history do we have with that animal? And until- so you're, you're, you're hoping in your place in Texas six-year-old six and a half year old or older that's correct yes sir that is what we're shooting for um data still out there um what we've seen so far is we're seeing significant antler growth um from five to six even six to seven um seven to eight we've actually still seen growth but it's definitely slowed down quite a bit going from seven to eight it changes there they may add a couple inches but it comes in terms of mass or extras, and maybe their their main beams shrink down a little bit. Tines are a little shorter. They just they look like a, a different deer, even though they may score slightly better. But our yeah. um, our biggest jumps we're seeing are four to five, five to six, and then six to seven is is kind of so seven as of now. If I could be a hundred percent sure that they were seven, is probably where I would target to to take these animals. So. You know, I, I get the whole QDMA poster, like, you know, because, again, thinking about science, those QDMA posters really are an average, right? An average of what a deer looks like and, you know, putting it out to the general population about this is what an average three-and-a-half-year-old looks like, an average four-and-a-half-year-old. If you want to get your deer herd up into those age ranges, this is what they generally look like. So I think they're, they're very good educational products. I do agree with you 
and maybe just people have not invested in the time to say, well, what, what changes would you expect to see under a much higher habitat management type scenario, feed, density, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, there's certainly improvement there. Let me ask this question because this is maybe a controversial question. Um, or actually I've got two. Sure. Do you think genetics actually has anything to do at the end of the day with what you're seeing expressed? I do. Um, I do. Is it, uh, is it my number one factor I look for? No, absolutely not. Um, I can, I use, let's, let's just use athletes for example. I mean, you talk about any sport, there is the undersized so-and-so, you know, pitcher or quarterback that they said he'll never make it because he doesn't have the size. They're not fast enough. Tom Brady can't run out of sight in a day. I mean, you, so I, I think there are definitely exceptions where genetics are not everything in this. They help. Mm. They absolutely help. They can give you all the potential in the world. But what if a deer cripples early? What if he hurts his leg? What if he hurts his jaw? What if there's there's so many other factors prior to genetics? One, the densities. Two, the nutrition. I think that's where we start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm totally with you on that. Um, you know, I, I was a professor. I don't know if I told you this in our brief conversation in Nashville, but I was a professor in the Wildlife Fisheries Department at Mississippi State University. Yes, sir. And they have a phenomenal deer program, right? Steve Damaris, before him, Harry Jacobson. Uh, Bronson Strickland is running that deer program now. And uh, Damaris and Strickland did this brilliant study in Mississippi where they took three populations of deer. They took the delta deer, which are the big deer, right? Genetic, as they say, genetically, and I'm putting it in air quotes, nobody can see air quotes because this is an uh, uh, audio medium, not a visual medium. Um, the genetically superior deer are the delta. They put them in a pen. They, they captured fawn does and bred fawns out of those does. Then they took the hill deer, which are less genetically superior, quote-unquote. And then they took coastal deer, which are runts. And they put them all on the same nutrition. What did they find? They found within two years, there was no statistical difference in antler expression between the three deer populations. Oh. So, genetics, though for certain elements, may be a contributing factor. I think I'm with you. Health. Whatever comprises health, nutrition, water, density, all those elements are what drives antler expression in deer. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, you, you mentioned your delta deer, and you mentioned too. I'd be interested to see on that study if they recorded weights on those deer i think they did i think they did what the weight difference between them looked like two three years later once they had the mm. same ration to see if that balanced mm. back out oh, oh, oh actually i now remember the study um so the gen the gen the gen one deer were different mm -hmm. but the gen two deer it were almost like identical when they started breeding out. So to your point, like yep. you've got your six-year program, like moving the program, it's, it's, a, it's a whole generational thing. Wait until the deer that are born on the feed 
make it all the way. You've got to wait for your R2 deer. Yep. You've got to wait for your R1 deer to be producing babies. And then those R2 babies are going to be like, okay, now right on the program. Yes, sir. That, that's absolutely right. But I think it's very, it's been incredible to see, which the data I'm really looking for is those second, third generations that are born on this program. But I take a deer Denise killed two years ago with me. Uh, it confirmed after she killed him at eight years old. I went back and when he found the, got on the feed program when he was December, when he was five years old. He was, my best guess, he's a 125 inch nine point is what he was. He was a, a nice deer. At six, he gets quite a bit bigger. I'm guessing he's probably 140 and he's a, is a basic 10. At seven, he is, my guess, low 150s. He's throwing a ton of mass and split growth brow tines. And then when she kills him at eight, he's 156 inches. He's our heaviest deer mass-wise to date. Uh, wow. That deer got it in the middle of his life. So it can still make mm. a difference no matter where the deer are. I mean, you make them healthy. And then to that point on making them healthy, they got to build their bodies before they build their antlers. We come out of the rut, you see a lot of folks that like to feed January through August, because that's when the deer are growing their antlers. If I'm only going to feed, I feed year-round. All they want, all year long, there is no stopping it. If, they, if it gets dry, if it gets drought, and they're just pounding it, it doesn't matter. We just keep pouring the feed to them. But budget constraints... Um, it does make them more difficult to hunt sometimes if you're feeding through the fall because they can, if it's free choice protein, they can, they can eat all night long. Um, what does free choice mean? Um, open tubes, they can have access to that feed. It's not on timers. It's not restricted. There's not a, it's, it's filled up. They can eat all they want anytime they want. Uh, gotcha. But if you were doing this, um, let's take a, um, Let's, let's take a bodybuilder, for example. And that's, in a sense, what we're doing here. Are they going to, all of a sudden, right before a meet, right before they go into a show or a competition, start pounding a bunch of food and getting ready? No, they're going to train for it. And so when the deer, you pour that feed to them in January, they're drawn down from the rut, they've lost body weight, they're injured, whatever the case may be. The antler growth begins when they drop their antler, and the new growth is what's pushing them off there. So they're still rebuilding their body in those first month and a half, two months there. If I only could feed six months a year, I would feed August through January and keep them healthy all the way through the fall, keep them as healthy as you can so they're not playing catch-up when it comes time to hey. grow their antlers. Typically in Texas, their spring's your wet, wet season. If you're going to get rain, that's when it's going to be. So you're going to get some native vegetation throughout the spring regardless. It was up to me. I would have a healthy deer through the fall and the winter. That way they come out of it ahead and they've got a jump start on their antler growth for the following year. Uh -huh. Now, the other thing that you haven't talked about a lot is the density. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I'll give you a little bit of background into me because there's a lot of like crossovers here. So as a professor in the wildlife fisheries department, I was, I'm a water quality guy. That's my background. I, met, I live on the, the reason I was hired in a wildlife fisheries department is because I live 
at the intersection between wildlife and fisheries, like on that boundary, how the land intersects with the water. Um, but I went deer hunting in the Delta one year, and we arrived, very nice private property. It was this, this property that um, you're only allowed to shoot four-and-a-half-year-old deer and above. And when I arrived on the property, I was, a, I was hunting does. That was why I was there, right? Mm -hmm. The guy, the, the biologist of the place said that they are under a doe moratorium. And I was like, oh, that sucks. Okay, fine. I'll, you know, I'll hunt a four-and-a-half-year-old deer if I get an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Sam, I sat six times. I saw over 180 deer at a ratio of five to one. And I was pissed. Because you're, you're there hoping to shoot does, and you've seen plenty of those, but... Yeah, so I wrote an article about deer density mm -hmm. and doe ratio, to buck ratio, and how, talking about what you just described, in the spring, antlers are dropping, you know, in the rut. Well, I'm actually, you know, from a deer density perspective, in the rut, ensuring that all your does are bred at that first estrus cycle so that your fawns are dropping at a period of time when the resources are good on the land and not a second estrus cycle when you have lots and lots and lots of does on the, on the land, that your fawns are now dropping in the middle of July, early August, where conditions are the toughest for a baby fawn that you're hoping is a buck that you are hoping expresses the best antler potential possible in the future, six years down the line, yet you've just started its life in the most hardest, toughest conditions it possibly can. Listen. Density is, is, is one of the biggest things like nutrition. I agree wholeheartedly. To speak on that, so our particular area, and this is different for Mississippi, it's different for 40 miles from where I'm sitting right now. I mean, it, it changes. For what so text parks and wildlife, the country that we're on, it says that that country in normal conditions can sustain a deer for ten acres. But sustaining is not what we're looking to do. Sustaining keeps them alive. We want to maximize them. We want them to thrive. We want them to prosper. So and that's taking a white-tailed deer. For 10 acres. That's not taking into effect anything that may be in competition with that deer. An axis deer, a rabbit, uh, I mean, a goat, anything else that may be out there competing with that whitetail. So when we took on this project, first thing that we went into was densities. We wanted to cut our densities in half. If state says it can sustain a deer to 10, let's go to deer to 20. Let's cut it in half. Let's make ourselves more drop proofs more disease proof. Let's start there. And so that's what we did. We worked prior to this data starting, we worked for um, about four full years, all but eradicating our herd, if you will. I mean, we shot and shot and shot because we were actually carrying about a deer to six acres when we took over this country. So 51,000 acres, a deer per 10 acres, that's 5,000 deer. If you said you were in the one to six, you're almost like seven and a half thousand deer. Yes, yes. When we started, we were shooting an astronomical amount of deer. Um, and we weren't necessarily prejudiced on what we were doing because 
per this program, densities was our number, our first step in it. We wanted our densities right. Um, mm -hmm. When you talk kind of brushing back to genetics, at that point in time, there was a lot of inferior deer out there, whether they were malnourished, whatever it was. And so we backed off. Well, is that a, an appropriate statement, though, in terms of our rhetoric and discussion thus far? Were, were they truly inferior genetics or they're just unhealthy? And that's unknown. And that, that really is. You could play it either way on that. Um, and, and it really is. So we, when our focus was on how many mouths do we have out there? So the genetic side of it, we put on the back part. We were, we were concerned with how many mouths we're feeding. And so that's what we went to. There wasn't a management plan on how old the deer are. Now, granted, if they were a big antler deer showing lots of potential, clearly we left them alone. But if there was any question at all, we erred on the side of, okay, let's take another mouth out of the herd and let's get our densities right first. Then we get into ratios, and I will tell you that I made a mistake on ratios. Uh, and this is something that I don't think many folks have thought of. So whatever your target ratio is, you know, if it's two to one, one to one, wherever you're trying to get to on that, we went out, I'd like to be one to one, one and a half to one. So does, hammer and does, shoot does, shoot does, shoot does, we're going to shoot the same number of does every year because you assume a one-to-one -one fawn crop. One buck, one doe. Until you don't have that. Over a 20-year span, yes, law of averages is going to play out to one-to-one -to -one on your fawn crop. But what's going to happen if you're looking at it in five-year cycles, one-year cycles, and you go 70-30 bucks to those, you go 60-40 bucks to those, and then all of a sudden you've shot the same number of does year before, and I've seen it on part of my place, that we went heavy buck fawns for a couple years in a row, shot the same number of does, and now we're two to one buck to doe. And that was oh, a mistake wow. for not taking that into consideration, that that fawn crop is not automatically assumed that it's 50% does, 50% bucks. That's something that you've got to be out there noticing. And once and my brother's actually the one that brought that to my attention is hell sam you've had two kids they're both boys you know that's uh my cousins had four kids they're all boys where does it actually balance out and 50 50 is ideally over 20 years where you're going to be but year to year you can you can't bank on that and so when you talk ratios that's something to consider that it's not always going to be 50 50 on your fawn crop yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. Man, it's a fascinating deal, man. You know, obviously, what I, what, what I love about whitetails is, and I think what you love about whitetails, is how almost like interactive it is. Is this? Like how hands-on it can be from a management perspective. I'm in the hunting business, and my favorite times of year are shed season and August when we're seeing what they've turned into the following year. That's, that's what I love. I mean, yes, harvesting, taking them, having clients come in and shoot them. I've gotten a little emotionally attached to some of them, so that's maybe the hardest part of the year for me. But, uh, but picking up and being able to have chronological matching sets of antlers and watching that deer 
throughout his life reach that potential and know that what we did from our densities to our feed program to our water, everything that we've added to these deer helped him get to that. That's what's fun to me. Wow, awesome. Awesome. Well, I knew this conversation would be good. Um, there's so much, and it, so much that is still unknown on the whitetail because it was impervious to science for so long. In the breeder pens, yes, they've been using that genetic enhancement, everything in those pens for years now. But why can't science help the free range side of things too? The low fence whitetail, again, it absolutely can. And we're starting to see some traction in this. More people getting on board with the feed program, but ultimately it comes, we're having to undo a generation of knowledge here that that was the only way narrow-minded for years and years that this is the way whitetail grow this is the way they breed this is the way they that they die at this age um a question to anybody that may be listening on this that's on the managed lands program for texas that you have to document all your deer um in their live weight dressed dressed weight uh and there's a column for age how many people have written down on that age column through the years deer older than five and a half years old on free range country my guess is because i was one of them very very few very very few deer have been written down over five and a half years old in those log books hmm. question is why because we've been trained from our dads from our uncles from our grandfathers that deer go downhill and die after a certain point. But I've got three years of, four years of tooth data that proves that wrong, that deer live to seven, eight, nine, ten years old in the wild. And some of these places that we're drawing this data off of, the first year that we were on them, we take these deer, it hasn't been fed, it hasn't been watered, and they're still eight, nine years old. So I think it is safe to say that deer in West Texas can live to seven, eight years old without any form of supplement. Mm. And so that's mm. something to consider is they just, they may live quite a bit longer than we previously thought. Sam, is there anything in like the habitat manipulation, habitat management game that still needs to be explored? Mulching, oh. um, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with the Texas uh, flora landscape and how it responds to certain management regimes like fire or mulching or anything like that. So there's a lot of practices that can do nothing but improve the land. Um, depending on where you're at, if you're dense cedar country, that tends to not have the browse and forbs that are provided on... Definitely. Country. Take the cedars out. Cedars can go, always. Uh, there's a lot of programs out through the NRCS and other organizations. Texas Parks of Wildlife even has some that allow for brush clearing, excavating, aerial spraying to eliminate um, some things. Anytime you cut a new edge in there, edges are where you're going to find your new growth and nutrition. They're going to come in the edges. Um, so there is a lot of things that can be done to the habitat. They're expensive. I mean, that's something that is, but there are programs out there, especially if you're paired with a landowner or a cattleman that can get in on some of the, um, the federally funded programs that allow for improved habitat, because while improving habitat for cattle, you're also going to improve the habitat for all the wildlife. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's an illusion that the thick, dense cover is um, where all your big deer are, but that's kind of debunked. Some of our biggest deer get killed in the wide open and spend their lives in more of our more excavated and cleared areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, in my opinion, I don't think you can do too much habitat manipulation other than just taking every tree bush out of it and turning it to dirt. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's certainly elements, obviously habitat elements, nutrition elements, density elements, that uh, as you invest in them are going to see the fruits to your, of your labor with respect to the whitetail expressions that you're after. And what I've done, the data that I'm working to, to finalize over the next few years, has our densities, it has our feed consumption per section, 640 acres, and that's the free choice protein and the cotton seed that we're feeding as well. I'm not taking into account the corn that's broadcast through the spin feeders because that's on a time deal where they're not, uh, they're, they don't have open access to that. Um, the water, anything throughout our ranch, anything that's more than 400 yards away from a windmill or a water source, we've put water inside the pens. So I have correlating data that if there's water 10 feet away from their food source, how much are they eating compared to water that's a half a mile away? Um, the stress of on those deer that don't have to travel as far. When they can eat, drink, sleep all within a small area, they're not moving. They're not having to put that stress in the 110 degree Texas summers. And so that's been a, a huge improvement that we've seen is adding that water to it. And not just for the deer, but all animals, all wildlife and fawn survival. This is some interesting data. We're in a terrible drought out here, have been for, for several years. This last year was the uh, about the worst that it's been since 2011. But the county we're in, I think the county average on unfed country had a fawn retention between 10 and 15% this year. This is all conducted mostly through aerial surveys. So that was just native ground, 10 to 15%, not on the river or the waterway. So 10 to 15% fawn survival. You jump over into our country that we are just feeding, that we're just doing the supplemental protein and cottonseed, it jumped our fawn retention to almost 70%. Mm. And to the areas that we feed and water, and our fawn retention jumped to about 140%. So there, That's impossible. It's not, and it's real, and there's... You can't, you can't have 140% retention. Sure. Twins. How? No, but each life is an own. It's an independent. It's a relative number. You either have them or you don't. So 100% retention is 100% retention. Okay, let me rephrase. On the survival rate, if you have 100 does, then we're counting 140 fawns. Oh, on the survival of does. Well, so if we're counting, we're doing our fawn surveys and counting our fawns, if our doe count showed 100 does and we counted 140 fawns, that's where we're saying 140%. Okay, 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 okay. 140% recruitment. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And that's... Yeah. That's, so the, but the survival rate is based on the fawns. And that, and that is a relative number to however many you have. So if you have 140 fawns and 140 survive, 
Yes, and that's that's a hundred percent recruit. That's a hundred percent survival. Hundred percent survival. Yes, but we're taking these surveys in September and October, where these fawns are established and likely to survive at that point. So what you're saying is the ten to fifteen percent. You're making there's a big assumption here, right? That is that every doe bred and had a fawn that year. And so when they did their surveys, 10% of the does on the non-fed, non-watered areas had a doe with them. Sorry, had a fawn with the doe. That is correct. And whether they gave birth and the fawn died early or due to drought conditions, they aborted it or were not bred to begin with due to body conditions. That's what we're looking at when we look at that. And your 100 does had 140 forms. Yes, and that would be, I mean, obviously averaged out. Those aren't the exact statistic numbers, but that was what our sure, sure, sure. was on it on roughly about 18,000 acres of our place that we are doing heavy feed, heavy water. Rest of it, we're doing just feed only. And then comparing that to other data with our biologists from other ranches throughout the county and the area we're in that have similar climate but they also have higher density. So that's another interesting fact of it. We had much higher fawn survival with much lower densities as well. Hmm. Going back to the very first step we took makes us more drought-proof. That makes sense. Makes sense. Look, man, fascinating conversation, fascinating discussion on an animal that arguably is the most common species to hunt in the world with the highest population of hunters chasing them in the world, arguably. Yes, sir. Um, so lots of things to learn, lots of things to understand. And, and obviously, as we said, it's a, a very exciting animal to work with because you can physically manage them and sort of manipulate them based on certain things that you as a human can do to the landscape. So, Sam... See, now I'm second-guessing myself. Okay. Jancha? Yeah, Jancha. Jancha. Okay. Jancha. I got it now. I'll never forget it. Sam John. Yeah, Sam Jancha. Thank you, my man. Much appreciate you. Absolutely, Robert. We appreciate it, man. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.